I'm Chris Conner, your host for CC Life Science. What is the cost to an employer of chronic presenteeism where a person is well enough to go to work but isn't really productive? What's the dollar value to a patient of being married in terms of health outcomes? And how do you figure that out? When we read that condition, fill in the blank, accounts for X dollars of lost productivity per year, I always wonder, where does that number come from and who came up with it? In this episode, you're going to find out. Let's dive into my conversation with Mark Gannett. Mark Gannett is an economist, life science strategist, and VP of a multi-million follower media company. Shout out to all the dog lovers. Welcome, Mark, to CC Life Science. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And shout out to Lamar Ashar for connecting us. So uh, what we're going to talk today about is pharmacoeconomics. So first of all, for folks who don't know and me, describe what that is and where the data comes from that's used in that. Yeah, so pharmacoeconomics is a subset of health economics. Uh, so my background is neuroscience and economics and genomics. And the genomics is a little less important for this, but it doesn't hurt. But neuroscience and economics are really strong backgrounds for basically looking at the health cost outcomes. So it's mostly around drugs, but honestly, people will run it on like med devices or any sort of medical intervention where you want to know what is the cost. And then they talk about the perspective because your cost could be me, right? If I'm a patient, I want to know the cost. So maybe I'm buying drugs for $200 every month, but it's saving me $600 in healthcare burden or whatever. And so that's the kind of thing you look at. Or maybe you look at from the insurance side where the insurance, it costs them, say, $20 to take a drug, to get a drug, and they're selling it $400 and whatever it is. But and the reason they do that is it's really expensive to develop these drugs. And so when you ask where the data comes from, it comes from a lot of things and pretty much anything we can get our hands on. We look at everything from your preclinical data where they're originally testing the drug. We read the original papers where they were talking about why they decided to formulate the drugs. A lot of those are going to reference cost-benefit analysis. And that's one of the main things they do. There's um, the big two are like cost benefit and then like cost effectiveness, which are a little different because one is basically and then there's like kind of like quality of care. So the again, it goes back to whose perspective is it? Are we looking from patients perspectives? Because then you're more likely to look on like quality of life years. So they're going to basically like if you're in pain all the time, you're not really enjoying your life. And that's one that comes up a lot. So going back to like pain medications are one that people have a very high willingness to pay, which is one of the things we look at from the literature. So you might say, okay, we have a new drug that hits pain. Well, let's say it only hits pain. We're going to make it easy. Well, we can go to this other drug where somebody else found out that this drug hits pain, nausea, and maybe like, I don't know, dizziness. And the pain part of that is three quarters of the cost and the cost is 800. Okay, then now somebody else did the study. Great. And then you go and you read their study and you make sure it applies, but then you're like, cool. And so a lot of what pharmacoeconomics is reading other people's studies because to actually do the studies to figure out what's the cost burden is very difficult. And it's easier to like infer it from demographic data, from outcome data, from hospital data, to look at the original uh, drug trials, which a lot of times they're going to have to record all the negative outcomes. And just to see kind of what's the body of literature as a starting point. And from that springboard, you can say, okay, what's our gap analysis look like on what kinds of data? Because you really want to take as many different types of data as you can without having data sets that are no longer congruous. 
And so it's this catch-22 where you're like, I want more kinds of data, but for every new type of data you do, you need to make sure that the populations are still aligned. Yeah, that sort of leads to my next question because um, when I see sort of statistical data that would say X percent of the population suffers from this or that, sometimes I wonder, like, do are we double counting people for because of combining studies? And then you, well, how do I know that the population in here doesn't significantly overlap with that one? And, but you counted some of those people twice. So this is when genomics is a really helpful background because a lot of the ways we figure these out is we do gene scans for thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people. They're called uh, GWAS, genome-wide association studies. And then you have biobanks. So like the UK biobank has like, I think 700,000 samples. And there's a new version of a biobank, which is literally just, we took a lot of people's, usually DNA and maybe some other biomarkers, put them all in one place and ran statistical appraisal. So that's one way we can figure out. And that's why genomics can be a very useful backstop because you can go and say, well, to answer that question, right, one of the ways we do is we look at other scientists and see what they did. And a lot of times it's based on population genetics or population health outcomes. And that's when it gets dicey because like endometriosis, I mentioned, is often cited as 10%, but actually I've seen data that pushes it as high as 18%. And the problem is, it's so hard to diagnose, and there are so few genes that you can look at population genetics as a proxy, but population genetics insinuates it's a lot higher than the 10%, which is treatment rates. So of one of the other ways we do it is you start treating people with drugs. If you don't know if it's this disease or that, sometimes they'll be like, well, like Alzheimer's dementia is a great example. A lot of the drugs help one and not really the other, and they're kind of hard to tell the difference of without genomics. So you can be like, well, we gave you this drug and three months later, it's not really working. We pr You probably have the other one. And so part of it is like they do post hoc, which is like after the fact analysis. Part of it is you do all these different lenses and you look at like genomics and proteomics and you look at who's going to hospitals or you look at who's seeking therapy for different things or you look at what people are recording to their physicians through EH, electronic health records. You can look at those. But the reality of the situation is it's kind of a problem that pharmacoeconomists are not worried about at all times, too. And that's why you try to make sure you have a complete enough data set that you're really looking at it with three, four, five different lenses. And then, you know, maybe one lens says this number, another lens says that number, and a third lens says the other number, and then the other two lenses say the third number as well. So you're like, okay, three of them think it's one number, and the other two have different numbers. Then you look and you go, why? And you just keep pulling on that thread because that's what you're supposed to do anyway in pharmacoeconomics to break it down to the most granular level of like, we are just appraising this symptom for this disease. We're just looking at the pain in your endometriosis specifically. We're not looking at all the other things or, you know, we're just going to look at this one aspect of how what's causing you to lose time. We're not going to talk about the time lost to your stomach aches. We're just going to talk about the time lost to your headaches. And so you isolate one variable as well as you can. And then you say, okay, this headaches, how often the times do we think your headaches are caused by endo versus these other diseases? And that's where genetics can be helpful, where electronic health records can be helpful, where, where drug interventions can be helpful, especially if you know this symptom is caused by this one pathway. And if it's this one pathway, this drug works. And if not, it won't. But the reality situation is it's not a clean answer because there's not a clean way to do it. It's very much like you look at the situation, you dig as far into the data as you can, 
And you try and get, because there probably always is a little bit of overlap, but you try and get that to a neglig as negligible amount as you can. With genomics, in theory, you can actually keep it clean. Because you can literally just say, Connor, you have a gene, Mark, you don't. Okay, so let me, I want to back up a little bit. You touched sure. on a few things there that we didn't really open up yet, which is, in essence, you are asking, what is the cost of my headache? right? Compared to the cost of a drug. Yes. And what is the cause of that headache in this case? Because the drug may, obviously it's not helping my endo, but somebody's right. endo, right. I, sure. but might help my headache for other reasons. So that that's the question we're trying to answer. And so talk about that cost analysis, time lost, all, what are the factors that go into saying, this is what this disease is costing you personally, your job, your family. The, right. So the, a lot of perspectives, perspectives that I take are what you insinuate, which is a consumer perspective, right? Because if you're doing B2C or B2B2C, people want to know, why should I buy this? So a great example is like um, incontinence is a pretty complicated one, but a good one to look at because you have like stress incontinence where there's a little bit of leakage, mostly for um, like with laughing or sneezing or whatever. And that's usually not seen as being so aversive, at least in women, a little more so in men, but women are pretty tolerant of it. And so they say the cost of me sometimes leaking a little urine is not worth going to find something. And if, if it's physiological, which are like say they have twins or something, you have a much higher likelihood of having it, then you know, it's easier to say, okay, well, here are some devices that might be able to help. But let's then, but what if you're in cons of like overactive bladder, which is more neurological and genomic? Well, then you say, okay, this actually is a much higher patient burden because those people, as somebody said, are tied to a bathroom. People with overactive bladder, like every one or three hours, they're like, oh my God, I have to pee so badly they can't. And so that has a really large cost in terms of, okay, now I'm not doing things. And I'm not going to work in the same way. I'm not getting promoted because I'm not in meetings as long or I can't go and do that, the work trip that my boss wanted me to because I'm worried about not being able to have a bathroom. So I'm not doing that. And then you have the psychological aspect of like a lot of people with overactive bladder, for instance, depending on how bad it is, they start to see like hits to their romance. And so you can look at like your psychosocial aspects and say, okay, because this is a little clearer than say endometriosis where it's like, one of the biggest burdens in endometriosis, women are really like, I probably have endo, but don't actually know. And there's a cost too to the uncertainty of knowing what you have. So there's a cost to figure out what you have. There's a cost to figure out how bad it is. There's a cost to every time you use an intervention, unless the intervention is a surgery or a gene therapy, which is maybe a one-off cost. And then there's these all these other costs of not getting treated. And so... This other cost is like some things like, say, for a lot of the urinary things, they'll put them in surgery. And sometimes, A, the surgeries will have remittance rates in three to five years. They'll have to be out for a while when they have surgery. There are other risk of complications of surgery. So you take all this. You say, what's the labor hit? What's the psychosocial hit? How much does this thing just suck? Like, what's the extent that this symptom is just not pleasant? And it's like, they call them like healthy years or healthy daily years, basically, because there's, a, they don't just say what's your life expectancy. They say what's your sick, non-sick life expectancy. And that's for the consumer. Those are all the things from, you know, lost job, lost wages, lost emotions, 
just the the misery, whatever. For an employer, it's more like, huh, Connor, uh, Connor doesn't tell me why, but he misses a lot more days of work. Or Endo's a great, Endo's a better example for an employer one. Because if you show up to work with, I think it's chronic presenteeism, so showing up to work when you have a chronic disease, but showing up, the cost burden, I think, is like 1.61. So basically, for every dollar you were, I was going to pay you, instead of paying $1.61, because that's what I'm losing in the labor. And if they just stopped, if they don't show up as much, it becomes like almost two. So for every dollar I'm paying you, if you're not showing, I think it's 1.94 is what I'm losing. And so you can look at that burden to an employer and say, hey, not only that, are you losing 1.94 in direct labor hours? If you eventually have to replace Connor, Connor, Chris, sorry, Chris Connor. That's all uh, right. If you have to replace him, um, it's going to cost nine months of new person's salary. And the person you're getting, by the way, let's say if it's endo, if it's a woman, 10% of the time she's going to have endometriosis. So just in general, 5% of the time they're going to have endometriosis if you replace them. So just because you replace them doesn't mean they're even going to be free of this disease. There's still a chance you're going to, if you did replace them, you're going to get somebody who also has the same condition. And all these things have to get factored in. And then, you know, to a hospital system, it's a step further where it's sort of like the employer outcomes, but more like less, oh, we're losing wages to them. And I spent all this time hiring Mr. Connor and now I'm screwed because he's got to leave or because he can't get the job done because he's chronically ill. It's, oh, hey, maybe I'm a nursing home or I'm a hospital. I'm paying for a nurse to come in every time they have, you know, a urinary issue. And so, like, for overactive bladder, we see with nursing homes, they're the people who have, and I know I've used three different use cases because depending on the condition, you're going to see different stakeholders are going to care more than others. Like, for something like endometriosis, I wouldn't expect hospitals to be as concerned because they don't have as many levers they can pull. If you want to know who's the most interested in this analysis, the more levers you have to pull, the more interested you are. If you're a hospital and you can get something like the urinary, there's a stress urinary incontinence med device that is even reimbursable and it reduces outcomes of stress incontinence like negatively so much, but they're kind of expensive. But if you're a hospital, you don't care. Or even an fMRI machine, they're extremely expensive. But you know what else is expensive? Not knowing what disease your patients have. And so really, pharmacoeconomics is a way of reducing the uncertainty. And genomics fits in really well, which was an accident, because it just gives you another lens to kind of check your data. And the same way my marketing background is a good lens, because sometimes you could look at marketing data, and sometimes that's enough. If you're like, wow, they put a new product on the market and sold off the shelves. I wonder if there's an untapped need here. Huh. And then it can start, start your analysis and you can just go from all these lenses and try and get down to one number. All right. So a lot of things in there I want to go to. So chronic Sorry. presenteeism, that's all right, is describing the situation where someone's showing up to work, but they're just, they're unproductive, right? Like I get migraines. I don't even show up to work when I have a migraine. I would be yeah. chronically absent, right? That'd be chronic absenteeism. I'm there right. when I don't have a migraine. If I have a migraine, I'm just not there. Right. But some people will, you know, it's not bad enough to stay home from work. They're going to go, all right, I'm going to go in and won't take a sick day, but, and I'll get done whatever I can get done, but it's not my usual. Then, um, I guess I want to get back to genomics. I'm just listing these in my head sure. so I don't forget them, but, no, you're good. um, so some of the absenteeism, sorry, continue. Yeah. So how do you, some of those social costs, how are those benchmarked? 
in terms of putting dollar values on the hit to my romance, for example? It's hard, but most things are actually by benchmarked off dialysis, which is $61,000 for another good year. So for the, that's actually the one I've been, I've been working on that one, the romance one. It's very difficult um, because, well, one of the best well-being things is having a family. And so if you can say that these diseases impact people's ability to have a family, and that's like infertility, like endo is the number one cause of infertility. And even if women are still fertile, they have a much harder time. Like they take on average two to three more types of IBF. I did a whole project that was looking at in vitro fertilization, endometriosis. And basically, if you could diagnose endo before people start an IVF cycle, you should. Because endo is the kind of example of pharmacoeconomics where it makes your outcome so much worse for IVF that paying a few grand to understand if you could get it, I think it's below 8,000, it would be like cost effective because it's like, it puts the uncertainty so high. So how do you figure it out for romance? Well, you have to look at like, what are the advantages to people being married, right? So you look at kind of the other way. When people do engage in these relationships, what do they get? And then you do a negative appraisal and you say, how much harder is it for them to get it than some of you didn't have this disease? And so say it's 30% harder than you take a 30% modifier on the original condition, the original benefit. Okay. So if you, if people benefit a million dollars a year, let's say from being happily married, whatever it is, and 20% of people are happily married. I hope it's not that low, but let's say it is. And endo makes it 50% as hard to be happily married. Then, you know, 1 million times 20% is 200,000. 50% of that, 100,000. So you have $100,000 loss. It might not be able to get it. And that's kind of how you would do the math really quickly. You would like reverse it and say, what's the benefit? Okay, well, how much harder is it for you to achieve this benefit? In that instance, this is what your burden is. So let's go back to that one because that's a very... I mean, I realize the number may not be a million dollars value but, of being happily married, but whatever the number is, where did it come from? I probably would I pull mean, it from another study where they would talk about the health benefits. And this is pharma. I mean, this is definitely pharmacoeconomics, right? There are health okay. benefits for men, particularly because women tell men, babe, go to the doctor. I'm fine. Okay, go so, to the doctor. So, so where you're going heart. with that is, Sorry. um, health costs, maybe just comparing a married population to an unmarried population yes. and what the cost is and assigning some fraction of that difference to the fact that they are married. Yes. And that's why I was alluding to with the marketing piece, the demographic analysis. I don't have an MPH, which is a very common background for this. I have the other way, right? I have econ and farm, really neuro, but pharma, right? As opposed to health and then probably picking up like some neuro or some pharma. And so I'm not as good at like the population based outside the genetics, but that is a very, very common thing to do to look at demography. I'm not like a slouch, but like, obviously there are people way better than me. And so most, a lot of, that's why you'll notice I'll lean more on like population genetics or like economic based studies where, cause economists generally have one way of doing it. Happiness economists, which are like behavioral economists are pretty close to where I am as a neuroeconomist and they do it something pretty similarly. And then neuroeconomics and pharmacoeconomics are sisters. Like we shake hands. So like I've come from that. The other way to do it though is what the MPHs do. And they look at like populations and they say these populations have this instance of the disease and these populations have that instance of the disease. And I actually think that that's kind of MPHs do top down. I generally do more bottom up. To your first question about how do you make sure you don't double count things, the more bottom up you do things, the harder it is to double count for okay. obvious reasons. Yeah. You start Fair from enough. the bottom. Yeah. 
So because I generally don't do as much top down, I'm less worried about that. I make sure to put in a top down analysis, but that's really common to do both a bottom up and a top down. And so the bottom up is usually the symptom based one. And the top down is the population based one where it's like maybe where you live, endo prevalence is 20%, where I live, it's 10%. Everything else is pretty much the same. And our populations are otherwise pretty much the same. What, how much greater is the health burden for your population? You could look at, you can look at families where it's like one member has endo and one doesn't do family matching. We are like, these two are basically the same, except this one thing. But again, there are all these other variables there where you don't run into in bottom up, but also there are these other variables that sometimes you want to look at that you don't get into in bottom up. Sometimes people have like compensatory methods that you only see as a family unit where like the family as a whole reduces the healthcare burden. Even though there's still a caregiver burden, sometimes to have a caregiver is a lower burden. A great example is like, if you think of a therapy dog, like an assistance dog, an assistance dog is great, but it would be better if you had an assistance person who lived with you, who like <laughs> maybe worked from home and didn't really have a job where it's like, oh, I just need the microwave, babe. Can you get the microwave? Yeah, sure. So now your health, and so those people aren't going to, suffer as much right like if i have my friend is really bad nerve damage and he can't like grab things well but his wife is home a decent amount and that really mitigates his health burden but like when she isn't there i mean you could think about theoretically his health burden is significantly higher if something were to happen to his wife yeah and so that's why like you look at it both ways and there's advantages to both ways because if i gave him a survey and i didn't know he lived with someone and I don't ask for that question, he might say, oh, this really isn't that bad. And it's not that bad because his wife takes care of it. Yeah. Got it. Cool. So we talked about, you mentioned endometriosis, and I think this ties in maybe to the genetics part, right? So let's, Mm -hmm. you and I spoke about this earlier and you mentioned already, like um, with respect to IVF, if someone has endo, the treatment is very different. And in fact, IVF site patients take two to three more cycles if they have bad endo. And you would treat them completely differently if you knew they had endo. You would have them do surgery. So like here, in theory, right, I work for a company that's like really close to a diagnostic for endo. They're doing fundraising, but it looks like they have a, they've cracked it, right? So this is why I was doing it because in theory, there's a, there's a business case for all women because the, the expected value is so much worse if you have endometriosis to pay two to four grand to get them tested. Be like, hey, sis, you do not have endo. You're good to go. We're like, hey, before we start this, we're actually going to have you do surgery. So the first round is 22,000, I think, um, for, for IVF. And the endo surgery is like half that. And the endo surgery drastically increases your outcomes. But also, I don't know, you don't have endo as bad anymore. Like, because it's like a surgery is one thing where they take out the tissue and it, they, a lot of times they're just going to do like a hysterectomy, but they're not going to do that if you're going to try and get pregnant, right? So right. it's a little, it's a different procedure and it basically puts them into a different pathway that's going to maximize their outcomes by mitigating their endos, negative effects on pregnancy before they even start to try the IVF. And that in, that's why I use pharmacoeconomics because if you know I have endo, you don't want to go get IVF. You want to go get surgery and then go get IVF. Got it. Okay, so let's let's jump to genomics. So at the beginning, sure. you talked about, um, you know, biobanks and measuring populations to sort of understand what the presence, I presume, of certain 
alleles or genes in a population are that create a risk. Um, talk about polygenic risk scores and how that factors into these calculations. It sounds yeah. like, let me see if I understand if I'd learned something here. That's going to be part of a top-down sort of analysis. Is that fair? Right? Yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah, you because you have large populations, and then yeah, and that really blends a bottom-up with a top-down because it's really they did a bottom-up analysis, but they did it on a huge population because they actually okay. went there and swabbed everyone. Probably usually a swab, right? They actually had the genes right. from hundreds of thousands of people, and so yeah, then that would become a form of a top-down where you can say we know from this population endo prevalence is this. And, you know, and the other way you can use it, you can layer it in, is you can say, so really a polygenic risk score is a way of saying how close we think you are to theoretically having a disease outside of a diagnostic. So this diagnostic, you really right. don't need one, but like a great, like depression. Depression is a huge gradation, you know, with an endo too as a gradation, but it's a little clearer, but depression's one where any sort of, or cancers are a great one because cancers are really pretty cut and dried. So if you have certain genes, that means your cancer is probably going to evolve in certain ways. So they're going to hit you with certain drugs to preempt that. And so, I mean, it becomes rock, paper, scissors if you can understand the genes well off, except you almost never can. So a lot of it is like, okay, we uh, we did this massive, uh, massive GWAS and... Um, we think that if you're above 60%, you're now a better candidate. So what they have, what they call are called PGX pharmacogenomics guided options. We're basically like, we would never usually give you this drug, but actually based on your genes, we're totally going to give you this drug. And an example I use a lot is like for depression, um, there's a drug called Welbutrin, which is a dopamine agonist. So it helps people with anhedonia, which is loss of pleasure. And it really is almost never prescribed in isolation. But there was a cool paper. They're like, yo, if people have certain genes and you give them Wellbutrin, they respond really well. What are those genes? They're the anhedonia genes. So they're basically saying, like, if you only have genes for anhedonia and we give you Wellbutrin, you're probably going to do really well without needing the extra drugs. So from a, pharmac from a patient per perspective, that's great because now you don't have to pay for an SSRI every And the side effect profiles in SSRIs, the one they're usually, uh, Wellbutrin is usually paired with, include things like sexual side effects. And so that's one reason. So like, actually, one of the ways you look at side effect costs is how many people stop taking a drug because of that one side effect. And in fact, for SSRIs, it's pretty much like everyone who didn't take it, it's like, why didn't you take it? Oh, because I lost my libido. I was getting depressed. And now I'm not happy in my relationship anymore. And then they stopped taking it because they're like, I don't want to break up with my girlfriend. She's like the one, you know, last good thing in my life. That happens a lot. And so, like, that's the other way of looking at it. Like, another thing is you can, and you can use pharmacogenomics, though, to intuit, oh, hey, Mark's likely going to want to drop this drug. Chris isn't. Because I can look okay. at your genes and be like, Mark has a bunch of side effect expression. You don't. So, going back to that, the GWAS and the biobanks, those are large collections but maybe de-identified. I'm trying to think about like, yeah, how do we connect? Like, yeah, those are de-identified. Then I come to you as a patient, you check my genes and you go, okay, now here's, you know, the population you fit in. And we know as a population, yeah, this is. Because we have yeah. 2 million genes that are de-identified. We use those to make algorithms and test the algorithms. And then once they're tested, I can look at you, me, whomever. 
But that's where, like, I do a lot of women's health work. That's where it gets interesting because, of course, that's when the population matters. If you have a bunch of white dudes, we are not good comps for, you know, better for some than other. But already men to women is, like, their drug interactions are really different. Like, women are way more sensitive and way more likely to have more adverse. I think it's 83% of adverse effects are drawn in women. So going back to pharmacoeconomics, you can look at genomics to say, ooh, if we want to mitigate this, we can actually just run the genes of women as part of personalized medicine and be like, not these drugs. So you can improve population health outcomes by looking at genetics to increase compliance and mitigate side effects. Neurogenomics, they are not super clear. They are not well discussed. They are not well documented. I've only seen a few papers on them, but the few papers are like, by the way, y'all. So for context, the first really, really formative paper on neurogenomics came back in 20, came out in like 2020, 2021. Like there are a few in 2018, but we really, this is like super, super new. Um, last three to five years, it's really starting to pick up. Pharmacogenomics is a little older, but neurogenomics is like really new. And so it's, it's a lot of like, hey, mostly for mental illness where in cancer, I think will be the first disruption where it's like, hey, you're treating this patient with that drug. But if you actually knew what kind of anxiety they had, you would be using this drug instead. You know, maybe we should like look into this because the other benefit with methylation risk scores is because you take a polygenic risk score, which is all the genes that could do it. And you look at all the ones that are turned on. You could start to say, hey, Chris, your depression's like really bad. Like you're expressing 85% of the genes bad. How do you feel? And then you can see if it's working because 85% expression should start going down if it's getting better. Because if you're not feeling depressed, you shouldn't be expressing those proteins. And so like where we're right on the cusp of is methylation testing is kind of expensive right now, which I think is the biggest friction. I think in the next five years, it'll be cheap enough, hopefully, that we can like, before people start getting treatment, get their methylation risk scores taken for various diseases. And then, like, as treatment's ongoing, check it again. Because something like endo or incontinence are pretty easier to tell if it's working, right? Are you in less pain? Are you having fewer accidents? Or are you having less urgency? Depression, good luck. I, my background's in depression. I did years of research on it. It's so much harder to know if you're working until it's, like, actually made some significant progress. And if people don't think it's working, they stop trying, and then it stops working. So... All this kind of comes yeah. back into optics. The number one way we can help all this is we can increase the information about what the disease state is at any given time. And that's what pharmacoeconomics as well as pharmacogenomics as well as neurogenomics are all interested in. Yeah, so now I understand. I mean, the methylation risk score is, or let's go back to the polygenic risk score. What genes do you have that could be a problem? The methylation risk score is how are those genes expressed, right? Yes. That's the and are they currently from, a problem? Exactly. Which is maybe a proxy for transcriptomics or any other more, Ex even no, more exactly. granular proteomic analysis. And then, um, and as you say with depression, because it might take a while, you could know that this drug is actually affecting that profile before the patient feels like it's, they shouldn't stop. So coming back to pharmacoeconomics, and now you see how they're connected, because long before the patient knows what's going on, you can use genomics to be like, no, you're actually getting better. Or before you even give them a drug, you can be like, based on genomics, we're just not going to give them that drug. 
Right. That's a hard pass. And you switch yeah. and you go, we're going to give him this one instead. Or, yeah. hey, we think these two drugs have the same efficacy. One's really expensive and one isn't. Well, why is one expensive? Well, for most people, it works better. But for you, it doesn't work better because of your genes. So there's no reason to give it to you. Yeah. Take placebo. Nice. Mark Gannett, this has been uh, educational as always. And I really, I've learned a lot in this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I so appreciate this. I think the last thing I'll leave you on is we're not there yet, but my assumption is the next five to 10 years, we're going to have a precision pharmacoeconomics field. It's going to be everything nice. we just talked about, where it's going to be this added layer of how expensive is it to personalize your drugs? Okay, not as expensive as your drugs not being personalized. Got it. We're going to take your genes and, then, and that's to end this somewhere, a hospital, right? That's the kind of thing a hospital or employer would be more interested in than say a user perspective. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed No, that's mine. a pretty cool, that's a cool vision and it's a great place to end. But also, you know, you think about all the data that we generate just in our lives, social media, everywhere else. Like, let's actually grab some data that would help us live longer and more happily. And not just longer, there's no but shortage of, so much pain. Yeah. Live better. Dated. Don't just live longer. Yeah. Live better. Who cares if we live to 200 if we're basically in a bed all day? I'm totally with so. you on that. I hope that answered some of the questions we asked at the beginning of this episode. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, chances are you work with someone who might enjoy it as well. Or maybe you just know people who are curious about these sorts of things like I am. It would be awesome if you would share the podcast with them. That's how we keep it going. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of CC Life Science. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.